Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. The show that gets you inside access to how some of retail real estate's most successful leaders went from your average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to take a quick second to thank the guys at CM for making this podcast happen. They've brought Limitless from an idea to making it a reality, and I can't thank them enough for support along the way. If you're looking to get going on your own content creation journey or need help with your marketing, I'd strongly encourage you to reach out to them at kazcm.com. On today's show, I sit down and to hear Bob Myers' story from humble beginnings in a small town in Ohio to becoming the chief operating officer of Phillips Edison and Company, the nation's largest privately held grocery anchor shopping center owner in the country. Bob's success story is one that is relatable, enjoyable, and something that I can't wait for you guys to hear. The one and only Bob Myers. Thank you so much for joining us on Limitless. How's it going? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Of course. We're lucky to have you. So we'll get right into it. Obviously, people know you as the Chief Operating Officer and President of Phillips Edison, which is an incredible role. And we'll certainly get to that on the back end. But I think for the purposes of our viewers or listeners, viewers, because we're Zooming, listeners on the podcast, everybody wants to know how, how someone like yourself who's accomplished so much gets there. So let's start from the beginning. Where are you from? How did you grow up? What, what was your family life like growing up? Yeah. Well, I had a very fortunate family life. So I grew up in a small town called Banward, Ohio. Banward, Ohio is about two hours north, northwest of Cincinnati, Ohio. So my mom and dad were both educators school teachers and guidance counselors, vice principals. And I was just surrounded by a family of educators, had the summers off, did a tremendous amount of camping. My dad was also a coach. So he coached baseball, basketball. So I grew up playing a lot of sports all the way through Van Wert. And we'll talk a little bit later about it, but it was a big decision for me to move from Van Wert to Cincinnati as part of uh, the career opportunities played out. But uh, grew up in a small town, and it was a great foundation. And I was very fortunate to have two loving parents that just didn't have any drama or any stories there. That's awesome. You were an only child? I had a brother, younger brother, four years younger. So everything I did wrong, he made corrections. So, <laughs> so that's okay. Nothing wrong with being a gay pig once in a while. Did you guys, I assume you beat him up a little bit? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That just comes with it. So, right. He's a lot smaller than I am. So he... Uh, it, <laughs> But very competitive. We had a lot of fun. We still have fun playing sports together. And what sports did you grow up playing? So baseball, basketball, and football. Wow. Okay. In a small town like Van Wert, you get to play all three sports. So down in Cincinnati, like my kids play one sport. (laughs) Right. Well, you're like Mr. All-American guy from Ohio. I love it. So you grew up with a pretty non-dramatic family life. I don't think it's an accident that you grew up the son of a coach because I know you well enough to know how much of a leader you are and how... You have no problem speaking in public. It sounds like your parents had a lot to do with that. My parents are awesome. So it was a blessing all the way through, Aaron. Got it. So you then go off to school where? What happens next? Yeah. So I either wanted to play college football or baseball. And as I was looking at college choices, I came to the conclusion that I wasn't big enough to play college football, at least at the level and competitiveness I wanted to. Uh, always had a passion around baseball, love baseball. So I ended up getting a baseball scholarship at Huntington College in Huntington, Indiana. And Huntington, Indiana is about 50 miles west of Van Wert, Ohio. It's about 20 miles southwest of Fort Wayne, Indiana sure. at a point. So I played baseball there and I played for a couple of years and then decided, you know what, I wasn't going to get drafted. And part of the reason I went to Huntington College My mom went there. My dad went there. I had cousins, aunts and uncles. And at the time, the baseball program was very, very strong and people were getting drafted every single year. Oh, wow. Probably like a lot of young boys that play baseball, I wanted to be a major league baseball player when I grew up. Sure. But quickly learned that I wasn't fast enough or couldn't throw hard enough. (laughs) Okay. What What position did you play just out of curiosity? Oh, I was a center fielder. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So your MLB dreams get crushed at some point during school. How are you as a student in high school and college? This question always fascinates me because you get a wide range in our business. Oh boy. Yeah. So I was very focused on just the sports. So I, I was a solid C student, maybe threw in a few Bs. Yep. My dad at one time told me, son, if you can get a 3.0 or better, 
and get on the honor roll, I'll buy a car. And I said, I'm going to pass on that. (laughs) (laughs) So so you're like me, you like diversification, you know, a couple of A's in PE, maybe D in science, C in math. I like to treat all the letters equally in my work. I just, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Yeah. See, it's, it's about being inclusive and, and making sure that the whole grading scale gets a chance. And you're being selfless as far as I'm concerned, because your classmates were able to be higher up in the uh, ranking. My brother learned from me. So my brother was salutatorian of the class. So straight A's. Oh, wow. So my parents managed him differently than me. It shows. <laughs> so that must have driven them crazy as educators. I'm sure they did not love that. <laughs> uh, well... They encouraged me to do better than what I did, but I wasn't really focused on my grades too much. Okay. Well, it would be hypocritical for me to, to critique you because I wasn't much better myself. So you go to school, you, did you study real estate? Any exposure to it? Like, what would you study? Yeah. So business administration. So everything was business and accounting for me. So got I got my bachelor's in business administration, a minor in accounting, and I knew I wanted to do something in business. So that was kind of my steps through Huntington College. And then I would say my junior year, I decided that I probably should start internships, co-ops. Sure. And I had an opportunity to work in Fort Wayne, Indiana at a company called Lincoln National Life Insurance. And I did 401k compliance. That was my first co-op opportunity. But I made a little bit of money and I did all the data inputs. And then uh, I found out after a couple of years of doing that, that I wanted to do something else. Okay. So you had some success, obviously, if they were willing to write you a paycheck at the 401k thing, but you didn't love it. What epiphany did you have on what you wanted to do, or maybe just as importantly, what you knew you didn't want to do there? Yeah. Well, League of National Life Insurance was a very, very large company. And just coming out of college, I was trying to figure out how to climb the corporate ladder, what I wanted to do, how I fit in. And they hired me right out of college. So I ended up working there for about a year, again, in 401k compliance. They gave me a few special projects to work on. But when I looked around, it was going to take me just years and years to climb the corporate ladder with all the bureaucracy that comes with a company like that. And I thought, you know what? I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to go out. I want to try some different things. So I, I had an opportunity to work for ITT Technical Institute, recruiting students to come in. So it's kind of how I first started getting into what I'd say sales and meeting with families at their homes in the evenings, encouraging them to sign up, come take a tour. And I did that for about a year. And it gave me some good exposure just from a sales standpoint, a little bit of success, a little bit of rejection. So it kind of shaped me a little bit. And I thought, you know what? All right. I don't want to do that any longer. But the entrepreneur in me said, you know what, I want to go out, I want to run my own business. So from there, I ended up buying three franchises of Service Master, fire and water restoration. Whoa. So I decided to do that. And it was probably one of the most difficult jobs I've had because we started you know, really from nothing, grew it to about 15 associates. I had janitorial contracts. I was doing water jobs, fire jobs, formed relationships with all the insurance agents. And it really took off. The problem was we were open 24-7 and I was getting calls at 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning and it literally just exhausted me. And you were how old at this time? How far out of school were you just to put in the context? I would have been 24. Wow. So you started your first business at 23, 24. So, yep. And I wanted to give it a shot. And at that time, I also got married and it was busy. And I thought, you know what, I need to slow down a little bit. So I ended up selling that franchise, got out of it. And I thought, you know what, I've always had a passion around real estate. And I think, you know, as a lot of people start their careers in real estate, they look for that first duplex or triplex. You live in an apartment, you rent the other two, you get to pay for itself. I kind of went through those stages, found some interest in commercial real estate. And then I found a company in Fort Wayne, Indiana called Equity Investment Group. So you were in Fort Wayne, so you relocated from college to Fort Wayne for the first job and then started your cleaning business there and then took the first job. Like you bought some duplexes and triplexes in Fort Wayne. All this is happening in Fort Wayne, correct? It's all happening in Van Wert, Ohio. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I actually moved back to Van Wert when I graduated and that's where Service Master was and did that. That's where I bought a couple apartments and played the game there. And, and then I decided, okay, I'm going to need to go to 
the big city, Fort Wayne, Indiana. To, to <laughs> find there's a, a lot of people who are listening to this podcast right now who have no idea where Fort Wayne, Indiana is. <laughs> I think it's like an hour and a half northeast of Indianapolis, right? It is. Okay. So if you're listening to this and you don't know where Indianapolis is, you, you come on, you got to know that one. So <laughs> let's give Bob some credit for that one. All right. So you moved back to Fort Wayne to take your first job. Tell us about yeah. that. So again, I was 24, 25 years old. It was a young company that was focused on buying value-add grocery-anchored shopping centers in tertiary markets. Sounds familiar. They had about 15 properties. I interviewed with all seven VPs and then the CEO of the company. And I went in to be a leasing agent. I wanted to be a leasing agent. And after spending the entire day with everybody at lunch, the CEO looked at me and he said, Boy, I really like you, but you just look too young. And I can't hire you because you're going to be talking with a lot of older professional people that run their businesses. And I just, I'm not sure you're going to be able to convince them to lease space. I said, I can't change my age or how I look. So maybe I can do something else. And then the door opened. He said, yeah, why don't we start in property management? So I said, okay, I'll start property management. I worked at Equity Investment Group for about 8 years. And the company grew from 15 properties to about 130. And it was all grocery anchored value add. And starting in property management gave me a foundation of operations, just in terms of managing budgets and understanding lease language and reconciliations. And my accounting background helped with that. So I ended up working in property management there for a few years. They had an opportunity in what I would consider due diligence and acquisitions. So I wanted to learn the buy side. So I did that there at Equity Investment Group for about a year. And then I had all these buddies. I used to hang out with all these leasing agents at Equity Investment Group. And occasionally, they would show me their paycheck. Look at this. Here I am. I'm working hard, <laughs> making $35,000, $40,000 a year. And then all of a sudden, a buddy does a big lots deal or something. He shows me a $25,000 commission check. And I thought, oh, that's intriguing to me. So as I was thinking about my next step, I'm like, I got to be a leasing agent. But before I decided to be a leasing agent, I was still growing in my property management role. I had the opportunity to be a director of property management, managed a few people, did that. And I felt like I had that box kind of checked. So now I wanted more cross-functional experience. So then I stepped over. I started doing renewals. So oh, nice. I keep like, on renewals. I was doing a couple hundred renewals a year. And then as part of that, I eventually went over to be a senior leasing agent. So those were kind of the positions over eight years that I worked at Equity Investment Group. But the foundation cross-functionally gave me a lot of experience. It helped me. The next step was as we grew from 30 to 130, the end of the fund cycle occurred. They had to sell all the properties. So they sold all the properties and then ended up with about 30 properties. And they decided they weren't going to grow anymore. And I said, you know what? I want to be with a growing organization and I want to start looking around. And as I was reading like a Shopping Centers Today magazine, I read an article on Phillips Edison and Company. At that time, they had 15, 20 shopping centers and they were raising funds through private high net worth individuals. And I thought, you know what? I want to go down to Cincinnati and see if I can play a role there. So Fort Wayne was the big city. What was Cincinnati then? Oh, it was huge. Like New York or Hong Kong, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know what? I was intrigued. I was a bit of a mama's boy because I mean, I lived right beside my parents in Bangor, Ohio for years. So we were a very close family and making a move to Cincinnati was tough because I would have to leave my folks and go to the big city. But I wanted the opportunity that Cincinnati would, would provide. I love professional sports, great dining, the arts everything that Cincinnati could offer. I didn't have in Bangor. So, I, so, I, was, so I have to ask this question. You're from small town Ohio. Is your version of fine dining when you move to Cincinnati skyline? <laughs> <laughs> well, Golden Corral, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you, I'm not from Cincinnati, so I'm going to say this as a quote on unbiased third party. For those of you who have never been to Cincinnati, never heard of it, or not heard of it, but have never spent time there, there's a chain of restaurants that I will go on the record of saying it's just very average, but people from Cincinnati seem to absolutely adore it. Sort of like people in Chicago love Portillo's. It's called Skyline Chili's. So I'm giving Bob a jab here by, by saying that Skyline was fine dining because it's, it's really a fast food place that you can do drive through from. But anyway, so you moved to Cincinnati. You're 25, 26 at the time, right? Yep. So I came down and interviewed with Philip Edison. 
And at the time, I interviewed for a vice president of property management role or a senior leasing agent. And at the time, they had another individual that they liked as a vice president of property management. And they said, Bob, how about you be a senior leasing agent? And I said, okay, well, that sounds great. And then they go, well, you're going to have to move to Cincinnati, though, to do it. And I thought, okay. So at the time, Equity Investment Group, even though I had my time there, I was still making pretty good money because I'd been there a while and I had my properties and merchandising. All that was pretty good. And Philip Edison wanted to give me a pretty sizable, I would say, price concession or <laughs> salary cut. Right. And then they wanted me to move my family down. And I was married. My wife was a school teacher. And I had a couple kids at the time. And I just said, man, I can't come down. My starting job here was $35,000 as a senior leasing agent. Which I presume is less than what you were making in equity. I want to get into the meat of this story in just a second. So tell me about your the last job at equity was in leasing, correct? It was a leasing. And yep. You were making pretty good money. I was making six figures, yeah. Okay, so a little bit more than thirty-five k. Got it. And yeah. when you were interviewing with Philip Edison. Help put this in the perspective too. Who was interviewing? Was it Mike and Jeff at the time, or I, I interviewed with let's see, Scott Mitchell at the time, who was running the leasing department. Mark Addy was the chief operating officer. Chris Rohde was our head of human resources. So those were the three individuals. Got it. And at the time, Pico had thirty properties. You said had twenty. 20 yeah. properties. And how many people work there? <laughs> there would have been no more than 25 people. Wow. Hard to fathom considering the size of the organization today is 400 properties, right? And Yeah, about 315 properties and about 280 associates. Wow. Okay. So a little bit of growth from that time, which I know you had a lot to do with, which is why I think everybody wants to hear the story. So anyway, you're 26, you're 27, you got a family, you're just being convinced to move to the big city where it costs more to live and you're going to make about a third of the money. Yeah, because I, I think in equity investment group, my salary was seventy five, eighty thousand, and then with commissions, you're making one hundred twenty five, hundred fifty thousand dollars. But I wasn't having any fun. The company wasn't growing, and I just thought it was going to fizzle out. So when Philip Edison offered me thirty five thousand dollars and to move my family, I was really excited about the opportunity, but I just couldn't take the step. So I said, "No, I, I can't do that right now. But let's just stay in touch. Let's stay in touch and see how things go." Well, about two or three months later, I get a call from Scott Mitchell and Scott says, Hey, Bob, would you still like to work with Philip Edison? And I said, well, I, yeah, I would. He goes, all right, well, I'm still going to pay you $35,000, but I'll let you do it out of your house. And I thought, okay, I'm in. Let's do it. Okay, there you go. Well, I have so many questions, but <laughs> let's start with, I think it's an important message to be had because you told an employer, no. But you obviously didn't say, hey, piss off or no, thank you, I'm not interested or just ghosted them. You obviously did it in a way that they appreciated because they came back to you. So tell us about that dynamic because that's not easy to basically say, no, thanks, I want to work for you and then still be able to finagle a job offer later on. Tell me about that. Well, I enjoyed the people that I interviewed with immensely. And I love the story of Philip Sedison when I interviewed with him. And I was intrigued about learning more about the company and moving to Cincinnati, Ohio. And had the offer been higher, I would have moved a lot quicker than that. But at the same time, my wife had a nice job as a school teacher. I lived next to my parents. Everything was in this nice little package, you know, so I was very comfortable. But I left it just... I stayed in touch with Phillips Edison over those two or three months. They were continuing to grow, so they needed another leasing agent. And I think they just eventually came to a conclusion that, you know what, we hit it off and our communication was good. And even though the first go around, I wasn't ready to move to Cincinnati, they still wanted to, I guess, give me a shot at at home. It was fortunate that we were both kind of willing and open and kept the communication alive during the process. And I was still very excited about the opportunity. I just wasn't mentally ready to make a move and move my family and two kids for that. Sure. So what changed... I mean, other than the fact that you were able to work out of your house and not have to give up the comfort at home, the numbers are the numbers though. What got you around eventually to make that decision and take that leap of faith? Because that's ultimately what it ended up being. To yeah. go from well into the six figures to a $35,000 base salary. I mean, was it the size of the portfolio and the vacancy that they were offering? I mean, had to have been something. I mean, it's got to get deal maker. So. Yeah. I would say a couple of things because a lot of people that I manage and talk to 
you have to be willing to take some risks and you have to be able to believe in yourself. And in a lot of cases, I'm a firm believer that you have to take a step back sometimes to take steps forward. And it's like gospel to me. I mean, I think my actions would totally agree with that, probably to a point where I'm a little bit insane, but I totally agree with you. I commend you immensely for taking that leap of faith. And obviously, it's paid off in huge dividends for your career. So kudos to you. That's amazing. The nice thing is I could take the opportunity because our house was in order. And my wife was earning an income at the time. That helped. We were still living in our first home. Our debt was in line. We were conservative, extremely conservative by nature, living in a small town. So I thought, you know what? I'm at an opportunity where I'm willing to take the risk. I also believed in the Phillips Edison story that they were going to continue to grow and provide opportunities. So when I accepted the position, Scott gave me about five or six properties that were new properties coming into Phillips Edison through a large acquisition. We were in the process of acquiring about 38 properties, I believe. Oh, wow. That's a big deal at that time. That's a big deal. Yeah, 2003. So that created some new inventory for us to lease. So I ended up getting five, six properties. They were properties that were in good markets, good cities, and there was a lot of vacancy. But the ownership put a lot of capital in, so they looked great. So I scrubbed the portfolio. Yeah, I looked at it and I thought, I can lease this. And I thought, you know what? I'll just go in and work as hard as I can. And Scott said, Bob, as you lease up these properties, I'll just continue to get you more. And that is one thing. If one thing is... Look, I know Pico has changed a lot over the years. Some people know this, some people don't. So I'll say, I used to work at Phillips Edison. And one thing I can tell you, it's probably never changed there, is it's very difficult to lease yourself out of a job there. Producers get fed more. And it sounds like you clearly you produced, as the story will tell. But what markets were you working, just out of curiosity? Nashville was probably my biggest market. Nashville and then Charleston, Somerville area. I worked some of the Melbourne, Florida market, that area. So Mm -hmm. those were probably the three markets that that I recall. Yeah. So you feel like that the willingness to travel and do deals in other markets was beneficial for you? Talk a little bit about that. Immensely. Yeah. I mean, with a company like Phillips Edison or Equity Investment Group, I mean, we have 315 shopping centers in 31 states. And if you want to be a leasing agent, you're going to have to travel. If you want the opportunity, it just comes with the job. Sure. And as a leasing agent, I just want a product. I'll fly wherever you want me to fly to. And now we've been very strategic. We have enough properties now where we have market concentration. So I can put a leasing agent on the ground. So I do it a little differently now than when we were smaller. But now we have leasing agents that live in some of our core markets. We match them off the property manager and, yep. you know, it's important to have that, I would just say, local wisdom by being present in the market every day. For sure. So you start there, you're doing deals left and right all over the country as a leasing agent. And this is 2003. What happens next? So I did that for about a year. And as the company was continuing to grow, and as we were acquiring properties, we needed Scott Mitchell needed to hire his first leasing manager. I waved my hand. I said, I'd like to be that leasing manager. And Scott said, that'd be great. Love for you to do that. You'll end up managing three or four leasing agents. But I'm going to need you to move down to Cincinnati. Because the leasing agents at the time, they were in Cincinnati. I was the outlier. Sure. At that time, we had agents in the office. And that job paid a little bit more money. So so the salary went up. And as the salary went up... I made the decision to uh, move the family down here and jump in. I ended up being a leasing manager. I love that job too. It was so fun talking about deals every day, working with the agents, traveling with the agents. It's just fun. And I did that for probably about two or three years. And then as the company continued to grow, we had a larger presence of redevelopment type assets. And then Scott Mitchell went over there to lead the initiative on turning around the redevelopment assets. And then I stepped into his shoes as vice president of leasing. So when you took the leasing manager job, I'm sure it was an incredible opportunity for you. But what was that dynamic like managing people that probably were passed up for that job, A? And B, I mean, you probably didn't have as good a relationship with them as they had with others because you weren't in the office. You were isolated two hours away. What was that dynamic like? Or or was it not an issue at all? I mean, it's always an issue, right? I mean, I think as you try to climb the corporate ladder, so to speak, you want to do the very best job you can to at least put yourself in a position to be a candidate. Sure. Right. But Phillips Edison, 
What was great about Phillips Edison is it created opportunity and it rewarded you for your results. And I used to come down once a week to the Cincinnati office that entire time when I was an agent. I'd come down for the leasing meetings. I'd go out to lunch with the team. So I had a lot of nice relationships. But yeah, I mean, there were some individuals on the team that would have liked that opportunity. Everybody's background and skill set and results are different. And I was fortunate to get the opportunity. That's great. So you go from the leasing manager a couple of years later, we're now in the, when is it, 2006, roughly, you become VP? Maybe 2006, 2007. Got it. Perfect timing as the story will pan out. So you become VP of leasing. How many leasing managers did you have working with you at that time? When I was a leasing manager, it was just maybe two or three at the time. And each of us were managing between two and three leasing agents each. Got it. Got it. And you became a VP. And then what happens next? Yep. So when I was a VP, as we continue to acquire properties, I ended up having four managers. So I had the country split regionally four ways. And we had probably 15 agents at the time. And that's when we went through the recession, 2007 through to, I don't geez, kind of hit our portfolio first. And then we were one of the last portfolios to come back out of it. So 2011. So during that time, there was a lot of leasing that needed to be done. So we lost a lot of occupancy, a lot of tenants closed up. And needs to say, it was a very busy time for us to lease space. So I ended up doing that for about four or five years and loved it. Again, loved everything about leasing. And then Mark Addy was our chief operating officer. And as we were continuing to grow, he brought me alongside of him to say, why don't you continue to run leasing, but then half the country operationally? So I said, okay. So I had that opportunity to wear that hat for a couple more years. And then in 2010, when we were right in the middle of raising a lot of money in the non-traded REIT business, Mark Addy went over to be president of the non-traded REIT business. And that gave me the opportunity to step in as chief operating officer. Got it. What was the pressure like in a and a high up role in the organization during the recession. I mean, you mentioned that Pico's portfolio got hit pretty hard, as did everybody's, but it sounds like even more so you guys. I know how much pressure you apply on yourself to perform, but clearly there, there had to have been some external pressure there. How did you manage that? How did you stay sane? Talk to us about that. It was a tough ride, but I mean, the, the most critical parts of that would have been you had to manage your cash flow during the time because you weren't collecting nearly as much rents. And as occupancy was falling and the uncertainty that was in the economy, you got to cut all your expenses. You got to cut your capital. You got to spend money where it makes sense. And at the time, our strategy in leasing was, I just wanted everybody to pound pavement, do the best job they can, throw anything up against the wall. And if there was some credit and the rents were decent, let's do some short-term deals. So I wasn't wanting to lock in low rents for 5 or 10 years, but I wanted to take an opportunity to say, let's get this tenant in business. Let's see if they can make money during the recession. And then let's just walk alongside them. Let's get them profitable. And as they get profitable, we'll continue to graduate the rents. So we ended up doing a lot of short-term deals just to, I'll call it, button down the hatches and survive during that time. And we did. I mean, we lost occupancy, but we got it back in a couple years. I had a lot of short-term leases. So our renewals team was very active, really pushing rents, trying to lock in some longer-term deals. A lot of those tenants made it through it. But it was because we walked alongside them. We really partnered with them. Right. Which I know is still deeply ingrained in the culture today. So you go from leasing to, to being COO, and you've been in that role for like eight or nine years now. Wow, it's crazy to say out loud. About 10 years, yeah. But just because you've had that title for that long, does not mean the job's been the same. Well, the job's different every year because we have new initiatives, new properties. We're selling properties, acquiring properties. Technology is changing. The economy is changing. We're fine-tuning our story as, as a grocery-anchored leader in the business. We're having a lot of fun. We're decentralizing a little bit. We opened up an Atlanta office, a New York office. We just relocated our Salt Lake City office to Park City. So, I mean, things are evolving. So is our culture. So within the role, obviously, you've been at the forefront of a lot of those initiatives. Like, What's the biggest difference in the job today compared to what it was 10 years ago when you got or 8 or 9 years ago when you got the role? When I was in the role then, I was in the middle of the recession. Yeah. So I'm 
it was a tough time in terms of just shoring up cash flow and what initiatives were we going to put in place to come out of it. Mm-hmm. And then we had a pretty nice run coming out of it that lasted for quite a while. Things were rocking and rolling up until February this year. Sure. And had some of the best operating results in the history of the company over the last three years. Yeah. So our occupancy has been increasing. Our ABRs and rents have been increasing. Our merchandising has been improving. Probably the biggest change, though, is just the process of how I've seen merchandising shift from 10 years ago when there was Cato, Shoe Show, GameStop, Sally Beauty, and GNC in front of a Walmart. And where are those tenants now and what their credit looks like versus now all of a sudden you're seeing service, medical, office, entertainment, fitness, fast casual food as your primary merchants in, in our grocery anchored shopping center space. So I've seen a shift of not only being necessity-based, but focused on internet resistance. Sure. That's been the big shift. I got to imagine your old leasing hat you're forever grateful for it is obviously I'm biased with my background being leasing too, but I got to think that being in the weeds in that in the past has really helped you have that vision on the merchandising side. Not to say there's anything wrong with the financial or construction or whatever your background, but being in the know about merchandising, I got to think is a, is a huge component of it. Yeah. I mean, leasing's hard. I'm a big proponent that in your background in you just want that experience and it's going to take you a year or two to really understand merchandising and how to lease space and overcome objection. I mean, good grief, you make a hundred phone calls to get one that says maybe they're interested. Right. And now, I mean, and prospecting has changed. Everything that we used to do, you go to the markets and you knock on doors and you prospect. And now with Facebook and all these other venues and technology, it brings us closer to the owners and the possibilities. So it's, I call it a toolbox. There's a lot of different tools that you can grab a hold of to be a leasing agent. But I will say, being a chief operating officer, my background and foundation in accounting and understanding the business from operating budgets to capital to Camrex and understanding lease language, it really helped my cross-functional learning and understanding. And then having a taste of acquisitions and due diligence, those were the components that I felt rounded me out enough to where I could at least know enough to be dangerous. There you go. So this is a perfect segue to my next question. You've done so many things. You've had so much exposure to different components of the business. What was the one job where you felt like you either learned the most or it was like your big break in your career that felt like that kind of catapulted you, if you will? But just everything in my leasing career, I mean, it was a stepping stone. So taking the initiative to do renewals and being on the transaction side of the business to then being a senior leasing agent and gaining confidence that I could do deals and do large anchor deals. I was motivated by the money and the commissions. I was really driven. My competitive nature came out on that. And I wanted to work as hard as I could to be the best that I could. And again, as our company grew, I just wanted to put myself into a position to be a candidate for the next opportunity, whether it was vice president of leasing, CEO. But I learned a tremendous amount as a vice president of leasing because I was in the strategy sessions. I was managing a large team, four leasing managers, 20-some agents. And that is really the experience that gave me the experience that I needed to step into a CEO role. Did you want to be the COO? I mean, what did, is this the role that you always envisioned? I mean, how has it been different if that wasn't the role? Like, what did you want originally when you got well, in? I, I, One of my favorite roles was being a leasing manager. I enjoyed it so much. I saw myself doing it for as long as they would have me. But I'll tell you the key, the key that helped my opportunities and my growth was I chose to work for a company that was aggressively growing and doubling in size every three years. So I caught the right window at Phillips Edison, where as it was continuing to grow, it provided opportunities for all the associates but in my case, particularly, that's why I've had the four or five opportunities at Phillips Edison is the growth provided the opportunity. So I didn't have to work as a leasing manager for 10 years. Right. I definitely wanted the opportunity to be a chief operating officer. I wasn't sure when I would get the opportunity, but I've been in the role for 10 years. So I was fortunate at age 37 to do it. That's amazing. I'm really glad that you mentioned that because that's such a key component to this show. By and large, a lot of the people that listen to it are people who are not where they want to be yet. 
that's sort of my thesis. If you're willing to take an hour to listen to someone who's really good like yourself and tell their story, they're doing it for a reason. They want to become you. So it sounds like a part of your advice to someone who wants to sit in your seat at some point is to try to find an organization that is growing exponentially. I'm going to make that as an assumption. Correct me if I'm wrong. What other advice would you give in addition to uh, finding the right organization to help you get there? Yeah. I'm a big proponent that one, at the foundation of it, believe in yourself and have passion for what you're doing to find the right organization that's growing. So maybe find a younger company, a young company that is starting that you can make an imprint on, right. that you can lean in on. Get as much cross-functional experience as you can get. Mine came from a background in property management to acquisitions, due diligence, some dispositions, renewals, leasing, and put yourself in position to know enough to be dangerous. Yeah. And I think that is absolutely key. I'm a huge proponent of once you get in to the organization, start networking. Start networking aggressively and start aligning yourself with people who's had the success that that can mentor you, that can teach you. And whether that's meeting with them formally once a week or doing lunches, but get engaged. Yeah. Be part of the culture and shape the culture. Because that's what leadership is looking for. As they look across the organizations, they're looking for people that want to be seen, want to stand out, want to take the initiative. And one thing I love about leasing agents that we've hired over the last two or three years, they seek me out and they go, Bob, I want to be the next leasing agent. And then I watch what they do and the success that they've had in their roles. And we handpick them. We look for certain character traits that really set them apart from the rest of the pack. There's definitely a drive there. But I, you just have to know and be smart about how to treat the people. You cannot get to the position you want without other people's help. And maybe even when I interviewed you, I might have asked you the question, what do you believe to be more important, how you perceive yourself or how others perceive you? And I'm not looking to hire people that only perceive themselves as the most important. I want people to understand the value of the people around them. It is so important how people perceive you because if I need legal to draft a lease for me, property management to sign off on my sign as construction to do my build out, I need all of them to sign off and work alongside of me. So I'm a big proponent in terms of you treat people with tremendous amount of respect, a foundation of, I want you to say please and thank you. I want you to take care and give these people a tremendous amount of respect. So, I mean, you know me well and you know our culture well that. I don't have time for bureaucracy and gossip and ego. Everybody is just as important as everybody else in this organization. And I view it very much as a family. And I think that's why we win as an organization. And we've been best places to work in Cincinnati the last three years. And I take a a tremendous amount of pride in our culture because I just think there's a right way of treating people and getting the best out of them. I can literally see the passion. I mean, I've got chills listening to you talk about how important it is to you. It shows. And I think if I had to guess, one of the toughest parts about the organization becoming so big is that you maybe don't get as much exposure and time with all the individual associates, especially now that they're spread out across the country. But I can tell you that leadership starts at the top and the fact that you've been able to ingrain it and the people that work very closely with you on a day-to-day basis, it does span out to the leasing agent in Salt Lake or the property manager in Atlanta or the finance guy in New York and everywhere in between. So your passion, as you alluded to during your your spiel there, was inevitable because it, it shows in your work. And I really commend you for that. As much as people may not believe this, I think you do. You might even have weaknesses. You may not be perfect. <laughs> Tell me, what are they and how do you navigate them? <laughs> I know you got one for us. I still haven't found it knowing you for six or seven years now, but maybe you can stop me here. Everybody has weaknesses. I would say probably my work-life balance a little bit because I have four kids and I'll have two in college. Time flies by. I spent so much time and effort focused on work in my career, but I still had some flexibility to coach my kids and be part of it. I think... There's a balance there. I'm not sure I would trade anything, Aaron. But at the same time, as I've gotten older, I wish I would have had a little bit more time on some of those situations with watching the kids or 
participating and watching more of the shows and, and that sort of thing. I mean, the other thing is, and this is important, I think, as a leader, leaders make decisions. You have to be able to make a decision. Okay? It'll lock you up if you don't make a decision. And I've made a lot of wrong decisions too, Aaron. I mean, as you're part of a growing organization, you have to try things. You have to come up with new initiatives. I've tried different constructs in terms of org design on certain departments and how many people we should have in departments and who should be running departments and especially in the leasing world. Should I have the leasing agents do the renewals, assignments, the ground leases, the new leases, or should I separate those out and have specialists in each discipline? So I've made a lot of those type of decisions that didn't work. Mm-hmm. But the key is, is, is not having an ego to go, I'm just going to force it through and drive it through versus going, that just didn't work. Forget it. We got to just rip the Band-Aid and we're going to go a different direction. So I think that's been one important thing in my career is say, you got to keep trying. You got to keep trying. You're going to make some mistakes along the way. But the key is make the decision. And hopefully 90% of the time, the decision's a good one. It gets you the outcome you want. But if it doesn't, you shift forces, but don't be afraid to make the decision. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of value in failing fast. If you're gonna fail, just do it. Make the decision. Say, okay, we tried it. I'm glad we can look at ourselves in the mirror and say we did it. Let's move on and try something else. I like that. That's great advice. So I like to get into sort of superlative type questions toward the end of the show. So I'm gonna throw some more at you here. They're not super superlative, but what was the biggest curveball you ever had thrown at you? And I don't mean that. And that's not a base. That's not a true baseball question. Well, honest to goodness, I mean, the curveball probably just hit me in March. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. I haven't seen anything like this in my entire career. And do you feel like your experience in the last recession and the leadership role that you had has been helpful for you in that? And what sort of principles are you applying to navigate? Without any question, I would say the critical thing is at the pace that this was happening and the states were shutting down and our true entrepreneurs, our tenants, which we call neighbors, when they closed, it was their livelihood. So it was everything our organization could do is to get them back open as fast as possible, get them federal aid as fast as possible, get them open again and get them paying some form of rent. But again, walking alongside them, knowing that they probably couldn't afford to pay April rent or May rent and some maybe even June, but saying, you know what, it's okay, let's get you back open and then we'll figure that out and work with you to get that taken care of on a payment plan or something down the road. We had hundreds of tenants closed, but I'm excited to say now that we've reopened 93% of them. So congratulations. Yeah, it's a big move because it was a big punch. And as we were going through that process, how to manage our cash flow, there were several things that we had to pull levers on to get us through the last couple of months. But I am encouraged by the signs that we're seeing with the neighbors reopening for business. They're paying rent again. They're getting the PPP funds. And I think there's some energy in the air that the businesses are glad to be open. And, and quite frankly, a lot of people want to get out of their homes again. Sure. But we'll try sure. to get back to some sort of normalcy. Sure. What is the craziest deal you've ever worked on? Craziest deal? Gosh, oh, geez. That one that you're comfortable talking about on the show too, because I know there was some probably crazy deals in the height of the recession for some of those old pulp assets. Oh, and I should have learned from it. I, and I did learn from it because I'll never do it again. But you remember the tenant Stephen Berry's? Of course. Oh, yeah. So Stephen Berry's... A lot of people listening are, probably haven't heard of Stephen Berry's. So they're like a sports authority. Well, again, sports authority is gone. So they're like a dick sporting goods, right? Is that... Pretty good description. You're very generous to call them a dick sporting goods. It's basically, assume you're going to a a college or university and you go into the gift shop and they sell Mm t-shirts and shoes. And then that's Stephen Berry's. That's how they started. And then basically they started doing screen printing with selling shirts and different things. And then they came out with a strategy where they could fill during the recession any vacancy that you had between 20 and 150,000 square feet. <laughs> and, and to your point, during the recession, I had a few boxes that were 90 to 120,000 feet. And it was one of those deals where they pay you a little bit of rent and then you end up paying a lot of TIA to get the deal done. You get them in and every store looks exactly the same. So not a lot of money went into space. And obviously, 
they're no longer around. It lasted about two or three years for them. But I can remember I had, and those deals cost millions of dollars, right? I mean, but what about them? They were just pocketing the money, right? I mean, yeah, they were pocketing the money. They were making three, four, five million dollars a deal. And I got cold feet going. I had calls into their CFO trying to get updates from them. And I had two brand new Stephen Berry deals on my desk that I had been holding for like three weeks because I didn't want to ink them yet. I just wasn't comfortable spending the money. And thank goodness I didn't sign those two because we were fortunate on those two. But we already did two or three other ones. Got it. So those were some crazy deals. Yeah, I'm sure. Were you steering things from peers? I mean, what gave you that intuition to say, you know what, we shouldn't execute these next couple of deals? Just sales and noise. Yeah, just viability. It's really interesting that a retailer thinks that they can operate out of 20,000 feet and 150,000 feet. Right. Your best retailers have their footprint. They know exactly what they want and they operate in that and they become experts at it. Right. Nothing doesn't seem like an expert when you can take a raw stress while it's working or size box. You've obviously given some phenomenal advice from your existing experience. What about advice that you have gotten from and who were those people, mentors, that where you just learned a piece of advice from someone and it really stuck? And as a result, it's really helped shape you into who you are today. Look, I think Scott Mitchell and Mark Addy were two wonderful mentors for me at Phillips Edison. Mike Phillips and Jeff Edison. I mean, these people were highly successful and they, they did it the right way. They led by example. They communicated exceptionally well. You built an, just a tremendous amount of trust, respect, loyalty. We had a lot of fun together. They gave me opportunities. They pushed me. They challenged me to learn. Sharing those same opportunities with the company today and the associates is really what I've taken in terms of their guidance and leadership and said, all right, I want to carry on the opportunities you've given me. I want to give those to our associates. But I also want to do it the right way and keep the culture intact and lead by that similar example. So I was very fortunate to not work in an organization where it was just a buddy club. There wasn't any clicks. And they were just genuinely fun people to be around. Still the point of this day. I remember when I left Phillips Edison and I met up with Ron Myers, who Ron runs your leasing department now, at the first conference that I saw him at. He's like, Sid, tell me about the new job. I'm like, oh, it's great. I'm running my own small team and I've got a ton of responsibility and I'm getting exposure. And he goes, well, I mean, do you miss it at all? I'm like, well, of course I miss Pico. He's like, well, what about it do you miss? I was like, the culture on the leasing team, that obviously is a byproduct of the rest of the organization, was like, it's second to none. You couldn't replicate that. And I was going to a smaller family office at the time at PEV. And to what you're saying, that's still the case today. Where like everybody's just like good people. I still have a ton of very close friends who still work at, at Pico. So the fact that you've been able to, that you've noticed that and then been able to manage along with a lot of other people along the way is really a, quite the accomplishment. One that's probably a much bigger deal in your eyes, because I know you're, how people driven you are than any numbers or. NOI growth or ABR growth or whatever it may be. So what a phenomenal reputation that you and the rest of the organization created as a result of that. So do you read? Yeah. I mean, I get 500 emails a day. (laughs) So I do a lot of reading just on the news and what's been going on and obviously our business and real estate. But I've always enjoyed like Steve Covey books and Drucker books and some of those classic leadership books. I've read a bunch of those books from that standpoint. Give us one book that changed your life. Well, let's see. I like the book. There's a new book by Brian Tome. Okay. Five Character Traits of a Man. That's been a good book. A good book, an easy read for a salesperson. I like the book, Dr. Smooth. Okay. Because uh, again, I like books that reiterate how to treat people. And, and that one does a, a nice one. I've read so many Drucker books five dysfunctions of a team in terms of how to get your team back on track or the foundation of trust and accountability and respect. Most of the time lately though, Aaron, I've been reading all my emails. For relief emails and hey, I need this. Yeah, I get that. I get that. So I'm really glad that you brought up people again, because I want to reiterate the point. This is a perfect segue to my last question, which I always ask guests. So at some point... Bob Myers will no longer be in commercial real estate by choice or 
for whatever reason, you will no longer be in the business. You, however, have accomplished so much and you're still like a long way to go. Like you're just getting going. And by a lot of people's standards, I'm sure you probably view it that way too. But at some point, you will be done. And when you're done, ICSC is going to write an article like, and Bob Myers retires or whatever it may be. He was chief operating officer at Phillips Edison for 100 years, whatever it is. When people click on that ICSC article and read about you, what do you want your legacy to be like when your career's over? I want the article to say that Phillips Edison has the best people in the business with the best culture, with the most dynamic group of individuals. And it shows in everything that we do day in and day out. We lead by example. Our results speak for themselves. And that we have a culture where we continue to encourage and support and help change people's lives for the better. That's really my foundation in terms of what I try to instill in each and every day. And I work very hard to be consistent with that. And I want to make people's lives better. And I think I can do that through providing opportunities, giving them development opportunities, life lessons to be friends. And just the core of my heart has always been around people. Real estate will come and go. I've had a great run and I love what I do and I love the people I work with. So I want to continue to do that as long as that exists. But at the same time, I want to do it the right way and surround myself with people that I want to work with. As someone who knows you, I would tell you, you're more than well on your way on that path. All you'd have to do is continue the course you're on. And I think that would easily be the narrative associated with the article. And I think it's not surprising when I asked that question, what does Bob want his legacy to be like? And you answered it with, I want Phillips Edison's culture or time or thought process. You made it about we as opposed to me, which is part of the course with you. I'm not surprised at all by that answer. So all that said, Bob, I can't thank you enough for making the time. I think the fact that you were willing to share your incredible story with our listeners is going to be absolutely invaluable to them. I'm just honored that you were allowing me to basically create the platform to do it. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Aaron, anytime. Love to catch up with you. Thanks for listening to Limitless, How to Crush It in Commercial Real Estate. I hope you were able to extract one piece of value out of today's episode. That's my only goal. If you did, in fact, get some value out of it, let me know via LinkedIn, Instagram, or through a review wherever you get your podcasts. 